Welcome to Building the Future, hosted by Kevin Horick. With millions of listeners a month, Building the Future has quickly become one of the fastest rising programs with a focus on interviewing startups, entrepreneurs, investors, CEOs, and more. The radio and TV show airs in 15 markets across the globe, including Silicon Valley. For full showtimes, past episodes, or to sponsor the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. The show is a proud media partner for the 11th Annual Media Excellence Awards, which are produced by Access Entertainment in Los Angeles, California. The Media Excellence Awards are recognized as the most influential awards show, honoring innovation and leadership in all things mobile entertainment, lifestyle, and technology. For more information on how to submit to these awards, please visit MediaXAwards.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Michael J. Morton. He's the CTO of Del Boomi. Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks, Kevin. It is great to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. You've done an astronomical amount of things, but maybe before we kind of get into all that stuff, let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up. Oh, okay. Yeah, that'd be fine. Um, You know, I actually grew up in a very small town, um, and that small town was Endicott, New York. Okay. Yep. And um, there's a bit of significance about Endicott that is directly related to um, my career. Okay. What, what is that? A lot of people don't realize that IBM was actually founded and started in Endicott, New York. Oh, I didn't know that. Interesting. Yep. So that's where it all started. Now, um, I did not necessarily grow up to aspire to say, hey, I want to work for IBM. Okay. Um, I had a natural gravitation towards technology anyways, but I will tell you that, uh, you know, so much of life and career is luck and timing uh-huh. that, you know, back in the 80s, um, it was, uh, Endicott was still a very, very viable place for IBM. And so I was afforded the luxury that when I finished uh, the first phase of my education, I actually started with IBM and Endicott New York. Interesting. So what did you take in university and why? Oh boy. Um, okay. This is a little bit of a, 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 a long story I'm going to make. No, as I like it. Possible. <laughs> okay. Um, at the time, Endicott was, um, even though it was a small town, um, it had a great tax base. There was a couple of big businesses there, of course, you know, IBM being the anchor. So therefore, when there's big businesses, um, there's a great tax base. You know, there's a lot of investment um, in infrastructure, a lot of investment in retail, um, uh, a lot of investment in schools. And fortunately for me, the school that I went to, which actually was in Endicott, New York, so I went okay. to uh, Union Endicott High School, um, had a very progressive, um, let's say, a very progressive and current um, teaching curriculum for a high school. Interesting. Right? Yeah. All of us can identify that where the money is, is going to be these, uh, these much more progressive um, opportunities. And the same was for Endicott. So believe it or not, in 1984, okay. Union Endicott actually offered programming classes for basic programming. That's very cool. Actually, to be fair, I, well, this was in 
later, but like the high school I went to had kind of like where we were learning like Photoshop and Flash back in the day when it was actually a thing and and like kind of basic and we were learning some programming languages and stuff as well. So I could totally relate to that. And like that in a lot of cases shaped my entire design careers. Like I was doing some of that stuff. Actually, it was even earlier. Like when I was 12, we started learning kind of HTML and stuff in junior high kind of high school or uh, computer class. So I, I totally kind of got hooked early on as well. And it sounds like you were in the same boat. Very, very similar. So I originally thought, um, I know this is crazy, but I, I, my original desire was to be an auto mechanic. This is well known. I've made okay. this many times, but uh, I always wanted to be an auto mechanic. I always had more of a, an, an engineering, let's say mechanical engineering um, passion. However, um, th at the root of everything is math. I mean, I always was a mathematician, right. still am. But uh, when I got exposed to uh, computer programming, sure. uh, actually doing something virtual and then producing results, I was immediately hooked. So there's no question that um, being very fortunate to be exposed to that early is what really, for me, for which many high school students struggle with, is what am I going to do? But I knew two years before I left high school exactly what I wanted to do. Very cool. So you took computer science. Walk me through kind of your university career into kind of working for uh, IBM because they kind of overlap, correct? Yeah, for sure. Yep. Um, okay, first of all, uh, just to um, just to make sure that listeners know that um, this is, you know, I I'm a real person. I've had a real life. I did not come from a very well-to-do family, so okay. I had to uh, I had to accommodate for that. Um, and because I was in New York, I went to the state university system. Okay. So at the time, I I did some research when I left high school of at what was the the best location within the State University of New York system to go for um, a legitimate accredited computer science program. And that was Interesting. Buffalo. Interesting. Yep, Buffalo. Yeah. So I had to make a choice that was cost effective, um, but at the same time getting the best computer science education I could get. And at the time that actually was the State University of New York at Buffalo. Interesting. Very cool. Yeah. Um, then I had to go to work. So I loved academic environment, by the way, that was for me. I, I loved, I, I loved it, loved the classroom, loved teaching, um, loved learning. So I really liked that environment. And if I had it my way, I would have kept going immediately, but needless to say, I, I had to, I, I had to start going to work, uh, to stand on my own two feet. Um, and, and I joined IBM. Uh, the, the, the other, um, how I got introduced to IBM was I simply applied for a summer internship. Interesting. So I didn't walk through the door as I left university. I just applied. Um, and there was no one really in my family that had, uh, a dr that had the ability to get me in the inside. I had to just apply as an outsider. And um, fortunately, maybe because of proximity and grades uh, from high school, um, I actually got into uh, a summer uh, summer program with IBM, so that's how that's how I made my first entry into that company was before I graduated. That's amazing. So, walk me through your entire kind of career at IBM, going back to university, at, with some career highlights. Because 
we could probably spend an entire show just on your kind of accomplishments at IBM. Ah, yeah, it's funny you say accomplishments. I, I say the the long, you know, the long path. Um, <laughs> well, when I when I left and graduated um, from uh, SUNY Buffalo, yeah, and then I started I started work. IBM was again. I was in a very fortunate situation where IBM said, go finish your education and then come back. We have a place for you. So that's I, awesome that they said I went, that. I went right back to the same department <laughs> doing the same thing, believe it or not. Like, right, that was it. So that's awesome, though. Imagine the, 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 again, it's all luck and timing. I never take any of this for granted. I'm very, very fortunate in that I went away to school for one more year knowing that I had a job. So I'm that's awesome. in a position to not even have to interview for a job. I mean, that is just what a, what a great, uh, what a great, you know, um, place to be. So, okay. So I go into IBM, mm -hmm. I get hired. Um, then I do the normal course of things, right? I start making some money. Uh, I buy a proper car, you know, I move out of my parents' <laughs> house, you know, all sure. the normal things that you would do. Sure. But I went right back to school. Okay. Imme immediately. So I got myself established for a few months. Um, but then, uh, at the time, IBM offered a graduate work-study program that um, they already had a relationship with the SUNY system. I actually went right back to school to do my graduate work at SUNY Binghamton this time because it was local to NDCAP, Binghamton being the, the next closest. So then I immediately went right back to school part-time to finish um, my, uh, my graduate work. And cool. at the time, I was actually... Uh, a mainframe developer for IBM writing assembler code. That's what I did my first few years. Interesting. Very cool. Yep. Um, then, of course, I rode many waves in IBM. Uh, there was no such thing, by the way, as an IBM software group. There wasn't. It was the really? mainframe. Like, yes. Oh, yeah, no, I guess. Hey, sure. No software group. None whatsoever. It was you're either in manufacturing or you're writing software for mainframe. And that is it. There was no PCs, no anything <laughs> when I started. So there was no OS2. There was no, you know, micro channel architecture and all these other things. So sure. there was no battle with, you know, no battle with Microsoft and Windows and all of that. It was way before that. Interesting. So I ended up being a mainframe developer and then came the client server era and then came distributed computing, then came PCs and then on and on and on. Well, for me, I rode the different waves until um, IBM actually assembled what they considered um, an IBM software group where they knew that one of their transitions as a business was to really start um, thinking about how to generate uh, uh, revenue from having a, a real dedicated software strategy. Um, so I was with IBM from the point in time, like I said, there was no soft, software group, no software division to all the way to now we have a software division. But for me, I'm an NDCAP being uh, an assembler, writing assembly code, uh, and then started writing in other high level um, languages. But yet I'm still working on old things. I'm, I'm working on old legacy software, old legacy hardware. And now we're talking roughly 1996. Okay. At that time, um, I knew that from a career standpoint, I was no longer working on next generation um, IT solutions. Right. So I started looking to see where in IBM was new innovations, emerging technology. So you can see where this is progressing. You sure. know, of my careers, I go from where I started as a junior programmer to now. You know, I, I'm now I'm am 
my career is in my control like anybody else. Your career is in your control always. Don't think that a company owes you anything. You're in control. That's really good advice, actually. Yeah. So for me, I knew that um, from a, a viability to grow myself, grow my interest, was I needed to get into more emerging technology. Well, believe it or not, in 1997 is when, well, Java came, roughly came on the scene in 96, maybe before sure. that, but I'll say 96. In 97, IBM said, hey, we, there's this new programming language called Java that's catching on fire. What should we do with it? Um, I decided from a career standpoint that I was going to transfer from IBM and Endicott down to IBM and Research Triangle Park in North Carolina. Okay. Because that is the first location of IBM that was investigating a strategy around building software solutions out of Java. Interesting. So what's the first thing I did when I, I, I came to um, down, I transferred down to a Research Triangle Park was I was the mainframe guy still, which was really funny because we were investigating running Java on PCs, but running Java on mainframe. Interesting. So because of my mainframe experience, I brought a skill from up north where all the mainframe stuff's going on in New York down to Research Triangle Park. So now I got to learn Java. I got to apply these new concepts to mainframe. And ultimately, to make a long story short, myself and a very small development team um, was investigating Java and was investigating um, the the Java that was being produced by Sun at the time, and 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 what was you know basically what 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 was happening in the whole uh, software space around Java, and um, the group I was with, which was an emerging technology group. We had we did not have let's say an immediate responsibility to produce a product, <clears throat> okay. But ultimately, us as a group, because of our degrees of freedom we ended up producing as a small team of six to eight people the very first release of IBM WebSphere Application Server version one. That's, that's crazy impressive. Like, I, I, I don't know how people know, like, that kind of changed a lot of things for a lot of different companies. Is that fair to say? Oh my gosh. It, I mean, this was way before J2E, way before mm -hmm. web services, so all that other, but the very first thing that we built was this runtime engine that ran servlets and JSPs for those out there that know what that is. And sure. they're still very much alive. But the, again, I come back to the, the luck in timing of taking control of my career, landing on this team, um, and it just catapulted my career with IBM. I mean, sure. because I, landed, I just landed in the right spot. Sure. Like, I, I think the thing is, if people haven't heard of it, like if they're not in kind of the space, like pretty much any developer that's ever touched a line of code has heard of what you guys created, right? Like, that's fair to say. If you've been writing code over the past 15 years, no question about it. You know exactly what it is. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So walk me through kind of the rest of your career at IBM, because you still have a lot more to go and do at IBM. Oh, yes. Um, during that time, um, I became exposed to the concept of um, writing patents. Oh, very um, cool. So at that time, uh, again, just by my nature of wanting to um, do something different, um, apply my my desire to look forward, emerging technology, be novel, come up with creative things, 
um, patenting was the natural fit for me. So during my career, um, I became very involved um, with IBM in regards to developing patents, okay. um, developing people to um, brain train them to understand what it means to think about and protect something novel. And not only that, you could imagine with a, a company like IBM that has the most extensive patent portfolio in the world, sure. they are under constant siege of litigation of other companies coming after them for infringement. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> I was involved in many cases in helping because of my long history right. of knowing um, what is the background on many um, many uh, patents that allowed defend and ward off you know lawsuits from other companies so because sure. of not just my ability to um, produce patents but um, uh, mentoring other people at the time at IBM or helping legal with cases Sure. Um, IBM has a very, very elite program that they call the Master Inventor Program for people that have just gone beyond, you know, above and beyond of helping IBM uh, produce IP and protect IP and keep its reign as being the most prolific uh, patenting company in the world. So, yeah, I, I've, that, I, that, was, um, that was a very um, enjoyable um, time for me that I, uh, let's say, you know, again, it's not like I put something on the refrigerator and said, here's my next award. Like, this is where I'm going to go after. It just happened. It sure. was a natural fit for me. And it just, it just happened. But you so, also were kind of at the ground floor of some of the stuff that you were probably getting sued about. So you're literally like, I was on the team that wrote the code for that. Yes. As a matter of, yes, exactly. I'll give you a perfect example. This is crazy. Wait to hear this one. So, okay, today, interesting. Think about when you use um, uh, either uh, your cable company to, to do an on-demand movie, or maybe you use iTunes to do an on-demand movie, or you use Amazon Prime. The whole point is, all of us can really identify with, um, hey, I want to watch this movie. I look at the catalog and I hit play. Sure. Right. What people don't realize is. How many other people in the world are watching that movie? Yep. There could be thousands, right? Maybe tens of thousands. And not only that, all of them are probably in a different place. You just started it. Maybe someone else totally. is five minutes in, another person's a thousand minutes in, right? But let's say you have 10,000 people watching that movie. How many, how many copies of sure. the movie are in the backend server by, by the provider to serve the movie because you're limited by how fast you can read off a disk or solid state memory. So maybe a hundred copies to serve your worldwide community that's watching the same movie, but all of them in yep. different locations. Now imagine that some of those people pause because they have to get up and go to the bathroom. They have to get a drink, yep. right? Now you have, now you're added another complexity is, is you now have people that paused it. Yep. Now imagine trying to manage when is it that you need to make another copy of that movie to another disc to serve your community so that they have uninterrupted uh, experience with watching the movie myself and other people wrote the patent for that sure and the amazing thing is we wrote the patent i think yeah. in 1994 that's really fascinating 1994. actually 94 so we basically wrote the on an on demand wow. digital media Barrier, patent, very early. which was targeted towards uh, 
basically providing the best customer experience of when to replicate a video to serve your video watching community over a network. But, but you weren't even like video online wasn't in 94 or it was so, so terrible at that time. So you guys were like very, very ahead. We were. Yeah. Like you've got to be almost like a decade. You could maybe argue maybe not quite a decade. Mm Mm-hmm. IBM, like this is this is the amazing That's crazy. thing about IBM is I can't say enough that you know IBM is you know it's still a very very innovative company, and um, again if we just talk about you know walking through my career I know I digress a little bit went from no no it's great man you know, I love it to you know a culture which was freedom thinking and working on incubation projects that's another example of a one that people just can't imagine the complexities of that. But yeah, I mean, and you know, again, that's another one. You have to believe that every company in the world that's serving media is infringing on that patent, every single one. Yeah, because you guys wrote it decades ago. That's right, yep. Which is before, internet, before streaming was even a thing on the internet, which I, like, most people probably can't even remember that. Like, I remember that, but, <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, it's, yep. nowadays, like, every, we just stream stuff to our phone, like, yep. or wherever. Like, it's wild. That's crazy. You guys wrote it so early, but okay. So keep on the path of to IBM. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. So, so um, I love it. Uh, you know, coming back. You know, so I make it. I make it at this point. You know, now I'm back in. In you know, I'm catching you up to the timeline again. Now, now I'm in IBM. Um, now, of course, IBM sees uh, an opportunity for you know its uh, its software group business unit. Web turns into a very very large thing. Um, first, the, uh, the, the very first product um, was WebSphere Application Server, but WebSphere became a brand. It became a sure. family. There yeah. are, I don't it's know. still a huge brand. It is, yes. It absolutely is. And there are many products that are called WebSphere, and many of those are built on top of WebSphere Application Server. So this became the foundation for many, many products. Of course, now you get, you know, you can see that there were some very smart people in IBM at the time sure. that knew that the way to grow um, the software business for IBM, help customers with their challenges, was to basically start building solutions on top of this application server platform. And I mean, sure. that's really what happened. Um, so I was in the position of going right from um, a senior level, uh, level developer uh, uh, working with a bunch of very imaginative and innovative people into a product that made it out the door and then an empire for, you know, for IBM with WebSphere. Sure. But, but now we're many years later and the transition for me became much more senior level roles. I love working on product, but then IBM started acquiring companies in, okay. in um, in the early 2000s, many, many companies. Sure. And when you acquire a company, there's always a pretty natural thing that happens. Many senior leaders in that company, they might have a, a short retention and then they will leave and they'll go do something else. So in order to be successful of acquiring a company, you have to start acclimating your existing senior level technical people into these new businesses, you know, to grow the business, right. to acclimate the business, you know, to the culture, um, to, to build a rapport, keep the business going. So my last, let's say, one, two, three, my last six to eight years with IBM was, believe it or not, in the role 
of moving every couple, three, four years to another area of IBM that was an acquisition to, for business continuity. Yep, to bring in senior architecture, um, insight, um, the background. You know, I always tell everybody the infamous thing is, you know, from IBM, I'm here to help. Um, <laughs> sure. So that's really the role was um, my value to IBM at the time um, was now to basically uh, ensure the, the growth and the business continuity of these acquisitions that came in. And so this is about where my career ended uh, for IBM before I exited the company. And this was after 23 years. Wow. Thanks for listening to Building the Future. This show is heard by more than a million people monthly in over 15 markets worldwide, including Silicon Valley. Kevin Horick's guests are leading business owners, successful entrepreneurs, and merchandisers worldwide. Now, your brand has an opportunity to tap into this dedicated and active group of business people who are looking for places to invest and the right opportunities to support. Find out how you can get involved at buildingthefutureshow.com. So walk me through you leaving IBM and your transition into Dell. Okay. Um, over 23 years, you can imagine, uh, built uh, a yeah. very, very good, uh, very good network, you know, of people that sure. I worked with over the years at IBM. And, you know, like every other business, you know, there's always a generation that was before me and a generation that's after me, but the generation before me um, had left IBM. A lot of people leave, you know, a lot of people leave because again, you're in control of your own career. So go try other things. Do, you know, go, go try to grow yourself for new experiences. That happens for all of us, right? We always sure. want to do things. Well, fortunately for me, um, the, the irony is Dell, which people historically view as a hardware company, a laptop company, sure. a storage yep. company, a server company, Michael Dell realized that um, his vision um, very, very smart guy, by the way. Sure, very I can humble, imagine. Very humble, unbelievably down to earth. Um, he he realized that in order to grow Dell, he needed to start diversifying. And the irony is, compared to IBM, is he needed to start building a software strategy. Sure, makes sense. And he had been acquiring companies um, over the past few years, maybe 2010, maybe a little bit before that, but definitely 2010 timeframe, he started thinking about where did he want to go with Dell and he started acquiring companies. Sure. Um, that means that my, some of my former colleagues from IBM had already been in Dell to help Michael Dell start building a software business. Interesting. And they came calling to me because of my background. Sure. Of well, you, um, and you obviously had a good relationship with these people. Like you didn't burn any bridges, right? Like you never know where people are going to end up, right? Oh yes, that's exactly right. Yep. So for me, oh boy, how could I resist the opportunity to help build a software empire in another company? Um, so I I left IBM. I came to Dell. Now notice I didn't say Dell Boomi. I came to Dell. Right. I worked for a CTO of Dell Software Group, Dell Software okay. Group. 
and my responsibility as a, as a distinguished engineer okay. for Dell Software Group was to help start building a product integration strategy to, to basically start integrating products together, right? Sure. I was only in that role for a few months and one of my product areas, I built a relationship while I was still in my integration role was Boomi. So I got okay. to know the Boomi team and the Boomi product very well. Interesting. Including the founder and CTO of Boomi at the time. He was the founder and CTO of Boomi. I built a relationship with him. Um, and he, he revealed to me that his retention was expiring and he was going to be exiting the company and he needed a replacement. Interesting. So although I enjoy strategy uh, because it still affords me to be a very technical person to look for creative and innovative ways to integrate products together. Sure. I'm, I, I, my passion is really to make a product be successful. Sure. So interesting. I absolutely love the culture of Boomi. The people were fantastic. I knew the challenge of the, the former CTO leaving because he built that business with, you know, from a couple people to many people and sure. people believed in him. There was, I, I, I knew I couldn't fill his shoes, but yet because of my background with IBM of going from group to group, Sure. You know, back to, hey, I'm, I'm, you know, from IBM, I'm here to help was to prove to you and earn my, you know, earn my ability to be a leader, you know, in these groups. Um, and so I was up for the challenge, needless to say. Um, I believed in the product. The people were fantastic. Um, and once again, it gave me the opportunity to take what was once a startup company and grow the company. Um, and now I've been in this role for a little over five years. Wow, that's that's great, man. So, for people that haven't heard of Dell Boomi, what exactly is it, and what do you guys do? Okay, um, I'll I'll tell you uh, the quick and easy, right? Sure. We, we, I often use this this interesting chart that makes people laugh when they say, "What does Boomi do?" And I actually put up, I actually do this, which probably okay. some people probably just you know can't believe it. But I put up a chart with a box with the letter A in it and an arrow to another box with a okay. B in it. And okay. I think that's what, that's what Boomi does. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right? Interesting. But really what it's doing is it, um, it connects to applications to okay. retrieve data. Okay. And it modifies that data and moves it to another application. Okay. Believe it or not, that's what it does. Now, of course you know, we don't have, you know, we, there's a reason why that we're responsible for, you know, running billions of transactions every month for businesses. It's, it's much, you know, it's much more than that, but fundamentally don't lose track of the fact that we're, you know, we're a product that moves data from one location to another that, you know, that is our ultimate, you know, that's what we do. But why, why are we good at this? Right? Why, why are we, why are we good at doing it? This is why we're good at doing it. Okay. Okay. Um, Number one is there was a, a principle. Uh, this is the vision of the original CTO and founder that said, you know, 
we should be developing a tool that allows customers to move data from one application to another. However, we should be doing it in such a way that we're, we don't require a person to write code. You don't Makes have to sense. write code. So instead, we're going to provide a, a, a UI experience that allows customers to drag and drop icons. We call them shapes, but just for the, you know, for the, the general audience. Sure. Drag and drop, draw arrows between boxes, and then configure. So our, our underlying original value proposition as a product to move data from one place to the other is a drag and drop configure no coding environment. Interesting. That's way more challenging to build than it sounds. It absolutely is. <laughs> like the easier it is for the user, the harder it is to develop in any yes. user experience. Like I, I would challenge anybody to find something that to, to prove me wrong there. So that is really um, the vision for Boomi. But okay. Many years later, so Boomi started, by the way, in 2000, right? So sure. there was vision around moving data from A to B or A to, you know, B, C, D, and E. So it's not one-to-one. -one. It can be from many and too many, okay? Got you, okay. Do it in a no-coding, drag-and-drop environment. This is 2000. Yeah, very early. So then came the vision for the next turn of the crank. The next turn okay. of the crank is, ooh, cloud, right? All these... Yeah applications that now run in the cloud, this is where Boomi really established itself as the ultimate vision of saying, we're not only going to provide a, a no coding environment to move data between application A and application B, we now are going to allow you to move data between legacy on-premise applications and cloud applications. And that yeah. really is what just basically just took off. Sure. Yeah, because there was a huge need. Well, there's still a huge need for that, right? It's almost endless. Yeah, it's funny that you say that because um, we can talk about, you know, sort of the 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 vision, you know, more of the vision, like what's coming, the crystal ball, like what's emerging. But um, yes, it is. It is almost endless right now. When you think of customers that are still adopting cloud technologies, it's sure. only a fraction of businesses that have already done it and so many more to go. Sure, well, and the funny thing is like, I have your homepage up right now and I'm just looking at it. You have like a, what would you like to connect section? And you know, there's a few rows here that just highlights a few of the connections that you guys will do. And like me on a daily basis, use a handful of them already, right? Like, so, if anybody's kind of in the space and they would go look and they would go look at kind of all the connect connectors that you guys have, like they're, they're using a ton of this, these software packages already, right. From, you know, the Google cloud to Jira to Twilio to MailChimp, like Meg, uh, Magento, like all these stuff for Etsy, you know, for people that maybe are a little bit less technical, probably use that all the time or Salesforce, or you have like, um, you know, a bunch of Oracle and SAP stuff like that list goes on and on. Like these are things people use every day, right? That's right. As a matter of fact, you just stumbled upon the, the, the next turn of the crank. So now we have a great platform in the cloud that you can write these integrations, but you said connectors. Sure. Okay. Now the name of the game to expand for an endless number of combinations of moving data from applications, you know, A, B, and C to applications C, D, and E is to build as many connectors 
as possible. Sure. Interesting. So, yep. so just for people on the back end, like if Dropbox or Google or Microsoft or whoever changes their back end, you guys will make all those changes for them. And it's kind of a seamless thing that probably they were they don't even know and they don't need to go and reconnect the connectors. Is that fair to say? Ah, yes. As a matter of fact, the the world of connector maintenance and, and upgrade is yeah. is the one of the challenges of an integration platform. So of course, we not only have to have here's another, you know, here's another thing to can you know take into consider of all the connectors we have. Yeah. Can you imagine the skills, like the amount of oh. skills we have to have? It's, yeah, it's got to be insane. It's incredible. Like, like do you have like on hundreds top of, of that, people working on this? I'm sorry, go ahead. Do you have like hundreds of people working on this? <laughs> we don't. We just we don't have hundreds. Okay. We have tens. Okay, interesting. But it's very, very structured. Um, we certainly have, you know, teams where it's their job to maintain and react to changes. We have teams gotcha. that, you know, create new um so it's it's you know it, it's a, a very uh core key critical part of our business the way our what our connector strategy is not only just the strategy of what are we going to build next why are we going to do it but the the whole you know r d um process around maintaining building yep that's right sure well and then on top of that you'd have new stuff's coming out all the time that you're like oh we need to add that in right Yes, you know, it might be surprising that um, we could be presented with a proposal from a customer and there may be 30, 40 new applications on there that we don't have connectors for. I mean, it could be sure. tens, tens. Sure. It's, in, it's incredible the, the number that are yet, you know, to be connected to, um, which gets very challenging, by the way, sure. because many of them can be very old. I mean, like, they yeah. just, you know, well, they, they don't, don't even, they're not even online, right? No data from like a system way in the back. <laughs> That's correct. But you know, I, I, I always try to give a, an interesting, uh, a interesting and different perspective. Um, you know, when I have these discussions, so think about this, okay. think about customers telling us what connectors they need over the past five years of me being in this role. I can't even imagine five years fascinating. ago. Five years ago, it may have been 10% of the asks of us building a connector for something in the cloud and 90% for, for legacy applications. Sure. Now it's yeah. the complete opposite. Now it's the opposite. Sure. So by two, two observations that we have in Boomi, one, we know which of our connectors are being used at any given second. Every second we know which connector is being used. Interesting. Your data two, must be insane. It is. It's, um, it, it really provides us insight into what our customers using us for so that we can provide them the best service that we can. So for example, if we see an uptick in, in one connector, then we will reach out and say, hey, you know, is there features of this connector that you know, will make it better for you? Because we're seeing that you know, there's you know, 5,000 customers using this connector now unexpectedly. Who knows? I'm just making stuff up. But, sure. anyways, but we do it for the purpose of how can we make the customer experience as good as we can? So we, we watch um, we watch 
which connectors are winning the, winning the popularity contest at any given time. Number two is we know where our customers are going based on the connectors they ask us for. Like it's interesting, interesting that you can extrapolate the rate and pace and what, what their cloud adoption strategy is by the connectors they're asking us for. Sure. Interesting. You must get customers that say, well, you just build this connection for us, but not others. Do you get that? Uh, there's, there is not very often, but no. there is no question that we get exclusivity requests. Yes, we do. Okay. Interesting. Yep. Mm-hmm. So where you guys, you kind of mentioned you've been through kind of three different iterations of Boomi in the sense that you went from kind of offline to online to kind of merging those two and then heavily online and then kind of integrating all those online services. Where do you guys kind of see this going or, or is it kind of still too early to tell? Oh my gosh. Are you kidding me? My job is to, my job is to have a crystal ball. So I know where it's going. I figured. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I can safely give you a little bit of insight, uh, you know, into more ways. Just in the space, right? If you can't talk about where you guys are necessarily going, but even just the space. Um, okay. Or you know, a lot of, uh, let's put it this way. A lot of it is still centered around cloud. Okay. Sure. Cloud is still evolving. Okay. Yep. So for us, um, we've already talked about that. The, the foundation of Boomi was, um, connecting, um, applications, you know, between on-premise and cloud or cloud to cloud, or sometimes just on-premise to on-premise. Sure. But you know, the, Let's say the evolution of iPads, um, it is, uh, A, it is, um, it's, it's still going at a, a frenetic pace, to be honest with you. Um, the whole integration platform as a space, there is almost no end in sight. Okay. Sure. End in sight because of what the market needs are from the evolution of integration. So first is, um, let's say in the you know mid two thousands, um, let's say you know I don't two two thousand you know two thousand five to two thousand ten. I mean who knows? Um, you customers were uh, adopting and executing on a cloud strategy. Okay. Okay. So that that's easy. Now. Now customers wanted to build web services, aka APIs, yeah. so that others could get access to data. So sure. we recognize that, oh yeah, customers are going to want to. They're going to want to build web services in front of this data that they're putting together from sources from the cloud and on-premise. So that was a natural evolution: was APIs, web services, API sure. management. Right. Sure. Then we realized that. Customers in their cloud strategy, cloud adoption, we have to realize that oftentimes um, adopting a cloud solution, whether it be Salesforce or something in Amazon or something in Microsoft, it is not always or very rarely a I'm I am retiring an old legacy on-premise software to this new cloud. That you know that takes time. Sure. You just don't turn the switch. So we realized that with cloud technologies, customers now have a problem on their hands. Yep. The problem is this. The problem is now they have a customer record in maybe 
10 locations across yeah, interesting. on-premise old applications. And now they have that same representation of a customer, customer record across five new locations in, in the cloud. Now they have a completely exacerbated problem of keeping customer information in sync and up to date. Yeah, totally. Now with Boomi, because we can integrate between on-premise and clouds, we developed yeah. a master data solution, which allowed customers to use Boomi to um, realize that when customer data changes in one location, it can sync and update all the other locations between cloud and on-premise. Which is very valuable. Yes. Interesting. Yep. And, and then I would assume you guys are gonna take it further back into the physical world, right? Physical meaning what? Tell me. Well, you, you think of like smart neighborhoods or anything that could be collecting data, right? Like, or um, on like actual physical stores, kind of what Amazon did with the Go, their Go stores in Seattle. And I think they're opening another one in somewhere else in Seattle, but um, actually taking some of this data and then syncing it with, you know, different neighborhoods or applications or like physical products like a fridge or a coffee maker or well like it maybe sounds stupid but what the point i'm trying to get across is like if you can be in control of your data and it's constantly syncing across maybe your personal and kind of work data you could do a lot of interesting things about that right because then you could say well if you know everything about my smart neighborhood that i will live in one day and you know kind of related to where I'm going to be based on my calendar and you're connecting to my coffee maker, you can sync, you know, you could have my car come pick me up. You can have my coffee made. You can have all this stuff, right? And I think that's a little bit more of a human level. But like if you take it from an enterprise thing, well, you could have, I, I could know everything about even certain types of clients that I'm meeting later in the day, right? And have a bunch of data around them and maybe some conversation starters or like, it's almost endless. You're hired. You're hired. <laughs> right. Am I on the same? Like I'm trying to give examples that like the average person would kind of understand, right? Like you got to have better examples than that for enterprise. Okay. So you are, you let's go back to the, the evolutionary theme. Okay. Okay. Sure. I love it. All right. So, so far, before you uh, started strategizing uh, on me, okay, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm going to give complete validity to everything you said. Okay. Okay. But up to that point, we were focused on business data and business applications, right? Sure. Sure. But now comes... Now comes another evolutionary wave to data integration, and that's Internet of Things. Yeah, interesting. Right? I love it. So once again, um, from a Boomi standpoint, we've been watching this for years, but you know, we have to time it of understanding where's the market going, where are customers investing, what mm -hmm. problems are they solving, what are they trying to achieve, right? Mm -hmm. So... Um, what we found was roughly in 2015, customers were asking us, what were we doing in regards to IoT? Sure. Now, the, the P 
people that were asking us were generally in the roles of the data integration department or data integration architect of okay. that company. And the, the one thing that we realized right away was you sort of had two camps of people that wanted to talk about IoT at the time. And you okay. still do. Sure. One camp is, hey, um, what device should I use? Um, I have all these devices. What solution do I need to connect to the device to grab the data? What solution do I need to move that data into a, a data lake? What solution do I need you know, to run analytics to get insights into my data? That's one camp is the infrastructure and the devices and you know, kind of like, okay, I'm collecting all the data, now what? Sure. Then you have the camp, which is the integration architect camp, which is how do I integrate device data into my business processes? Sure, because then you could predict things even like hardware failure, right? Very, very common pattern is actually is 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 maintenance is 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 sure. predictive maintenance. Yeah, that's one of the most popular. Um, and since you brought it up, this is all connected to what you said. Is okay now. I have devices producing data, and let's take predictive yeah. maintenance. People sure. say, "Hey, great, um, I have a solution." And by the way, for the record, Boomi does Boomi. We don't look at Boomi as connecting to the device. We sure. use we look at Boomi to deliver a business outcome or business value to a company because of a device data. So let's take predictive maintenance. Let's okay. say that um, let's say that you are monitoring a conveyor belt, anything mechanical, right? Anything mm -hmm. that has movement or iteration, I mean, or or turns like a motor or you know robotic motions, could be anything. You will learn um, you know, there's learning behaviors now that you can track this of when is it time to do maintenance to avoid any downtime in your business, right? Sure. Okay, that's great. But so you now have an IoT solution that gathers data and you have rules that say, hey, every 10,000 hours, um, someone should come and perform maintenance, you know, on this piece of mechanical equipment. And, sure. and people say, well, that's IoT. But I say, it is IoT, but let me ask you this. Um, you detected when it was time, but what did you do yeah. to address the the problem, uh, you know, and apply maintenance and reset the clock again? Like, what did you do? Did you sure. pick up the phone and phone somebody? Well, that's not efficient. You know, uh, did you send an email? Well, that's, you know, you know, um, you know, did you manually send an email? Well, that's not efficient. And so the interesting thing is from a Boomi standpoint, we discovered that, all these vendors in the market was investing in the ability to connect to, gather data, um, run rules, even do analytics to get insights into predictive things. But sure. there was no integration to the business side of it, of a process. So for example, okay, I've detected I need to do maintenance, but okay, why, why didn't you use a, a cloud application like Salesforce to open a service ticket? Totally. Right. Yeah. 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 Totally. Interesting. So for us, we we knew that the that once again in the evolution of our customers, the market, I made a statement uh, recently um, on stage that said, "This may be hard for everybody to believe, but I'll guarantee that, you know, that ninety percent or more of businesses over the next couple of years will be producing and or consuming and sharing device data as part of their business." Sure. And there will be an integration to a business application. Um, it's, you know, it's inevitable. So we, we knew that, that as part of the evolution of integration for Boomi, that IoT was absolutely a necessary wave 
of customers that if they're already invested in Boomi as an integration platform to run their business, that they can use the same platform to run business processes that now involve device data. Yeah, that's actually quite fascinating because I also think that like, and people are probably going to hate me for saying this, but I, I almost see, and a lot of people's jobs are, are so tied to kind of their work schedule or their work day. So like having pers- your personal data sync with your work data could actually give you a lot of conveniences, right? Related to syncing across this stuff. Like to go back to kind of my home smart neighborhood example again, because I think most people can relate to that. It's like, if you guys are connected to Amazon and Amazon just released that thing that said, well, my fridge, uh, or I'm having a dinner party on Saturday and I order these things, like it could be in my fridge Friday evening and and it pulls with my Google calendar. And then I know that one of the guys coming to the dinner party is a potential prospect because of my Salesforce or some sort of other integration, right? Like it's, do you know what I'm getting at there? Like I'm trying to give examples that like maybe the average person that's maybe not technical can kind of understand. Okay, you ready for this? Yeah, I'm I gonna, love it. I'm I, going I to figure... give you an example that you can steal. Okay, interesting. It just so happens I have a neighborhood example that I pull out once in a while. Okay. It's this. So, um, again, I'll try not to make it a long story, but I try no, to give people some insight of how I think. So, okay, I walk into my local Lowe's hardware um, store, right? Everybody yeah. knows Lowe's, Home Depot, but it's Lowe's. Sure. I walk into Lowe's. And yeah, of course, I'm a very do-it-yourself kind of guy. I'm on a mission. I'm going in to get some nuts and bolts, you know what I mean, sandpaper, whatever, right? Yeah. But I never stop thinking about integration and I never stop thinking about um, technology. So now I walk into Lowe's where once was a huge display of seasonal goods, lawn chairs, you know, insecticide, fertilizer, you know, yep. citronella candles is now replaced with home automation center. Sure. Interesting. And there is a ton of products that Lowe's sells. So then you think to yourself, wow, what a transition that you would normally walk into a, you know, a hardware store and the first thing you see is this you know, 30 foot by 30 foot section of all the home products that they're selling. Now, of course, they're in the business of you know, partnering with different vendors and making money. Yes, we realize this. But the bottom line is it also says that they're making money because people are adopting and buying internet connected devices for their home. Yeah. Here's the example. The example's this. Okay. Um, many people now have um, many different type of internet connected uh, things in their home. It could be uh, your security alarm, right? Sure. Yeah. It could be your uh, smoke detectors. Sure. It could be your garage door. By the way, I'm, name, I'm naming these things because it's what I have. Sure, okay, um, interesting. It's, ca- it's cameras. Um, so why would I not um, want to be alerted if my neighbor's house was either on fire or broken into? Totally. So you think to yourself, um, and by the way, I'm going to tell you something you can edit out. This is the crazy thing. This I'll give you a little insight. I mean, you can right. mention this if you want, but I'll, I'll tell you. I actually buy domain names when I think of things. That's a, No, I, I, I do the same thing. So I, I totally don't think that's crazy at all. So I actually own the domain thingscrowd.com. Okay, interesting. And the reason why I own is because I thought to myself, 
why would I, if, if I, you know, if, if I really had nothing else to do, imagine me building an integration platform that allowed my neighbors to be notified when there is a potential problem. Sure. So if, if my neighbor's house was, you know, on fire, yeah, of course, I feel very bad about that. Um, yeah. But and A, if I'm home, maybe I can go check on the house right away. Yeah. If I'm not home, maybe I want to check on my house or check my cameras. Yeah. If their house is broken into, you know, is there a group of people that are just, you know, breaking into houses? Again, I want to check my camera or I want to, you know, maybe I want to, you know, real time see if there's anything going on at my house. And so mm -hmm. the, the amazing thing is what does it come down to in the end is the point I'm trying to make. It actually comes down to the ability to integrate the data being produced by those devices and listening for the events coming from those devices. Totally. Interesting. That's, you're 100% right. No, so, you're, you're the CTO of Boomi. You could get that bill. Come on. <laughs> believe, yes, I could. As long as, my, as long as my neighbors trust me that their password to all their devices will never be shared. <laughs> sure, man. I think that's great. But sadly, we're coming to the end of the show. We could probably go on for another hour or two. But... Let's close with mentioning where people can get more information about you guys at Boomi and any other links you want to mention. Um, yeah, absolutely. So today you can go to uh, boomi.com. Um, you can actually sign up for a free trial. So if you want to take Boomi for a spin, um, you get a free trial. Um, it gives you instructions what to do. We're cloud-based, so you do all your development um, and management in the cloud. And uh, because we're a no coding environment, you can pick up, you can just get your own instance of the product, use your browser, log into it, start building things using the connectors that we talked about, and you can start experimenting yourself. That's great. Michael, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be on the show. And I look forward to keeping in touch with you and have a good rest of your day. Yeah, Kevin, this was great. Thank have a good one. Much. See ya. It was great. Yep. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at buildingthefutureshow.com to join the free community, sign up for our newsletter, or to sponsor the show. The music is done by Electric Mantra. You can check him out at electricmantra.com and keep building the future.